and welcome to the third episode of Opposition Cast. And this week, we'll be looking at a topic which, it's fair to say, has received its fair share of attention over the last few years. That is the UK's relationship with the European Union. Yes, I'm afraid we are going to be talking about Brexit. Too often, I think, we consider opposition as being something that takes place between political parties. But of course, it also exists as a phenomenon in the general public as well and their attitudes towards particular institutions or policies. And certainly in the issue of the UK's relationship with the EU over the course of its 40 or so years of membership, we've seen a high degree of what we can now describe as Eurosceptic attitudes developing. And what is Euroscepticism if it isn't some degree of opposition to further European integration by the UK. To discuss this issue, I'm delighted to have been joined by an expert who I know quite well. Stuart Smedley is a PhD student in the Department for Political Economy at King's College London uh, within the Centre for British Politics and Government, which is where I also have the pleasure of teaching. Stuart's research is looking at the historical developments of British public opinion towards European integration from 1973 onwards. And he also brings some personal expertise to the topic, having worked himself for four years for the pollen company Ipsos Mori. So, who better to discuss the issue of British public opinion in relation to the European Union, and how opposition to ongoing membership and integration developed? I began by asking Stuart just to outline what his PhD thesis is all about. So my PhD thesis is titled Public Opinion and Attitudes Towards European Integration in Great Britain uh, from 1973 until 2016. Basically, within the thesis, I've chosen five, five aspects of developments in European integration that took place during the course of Britain's membership and analysing public opinion towards those, measuring or crudely measuring the extent to which um, public opinion reflected the preferences of the British government and the, the three main political parties, obviously Labour, Conservative and Liberal parties. And the, the five developments that I've chosen to analyse are, first of all, the speed of integration and the development of the concept of flexible integration. So looking at things such as opt-outs, which Britain heavily enjoyed during the period of its, its membership concepts, such as subsidiarity, which theoretically set limits on the extent to which European integration could take place. The second development I'm looking at looks at economic and monetary union. I'll then go on, go on to look at the single market, social policy and free movement of people. The subsequent chapter then looks at attitudes towards the enlargement of the European community and European Union. And then the final chapter looks at public opinion towards foreign and defence policy cooperation within the, within the European Union. There's also a, a, a chapter at the start which looks at general measures of public opinion towards European integration, so the issue salience, European identity and general attitudes towards, towards membership. And you've got a particular interest and I think background in public opinion research. A lot of these trends go a long way back. How far are we able to go back with that, that sort of data set? Is, do we have comparable public opinion data for the whole period of the UK's membership? So it's fortunate that the UK's period of membership coincided with the onset of the Eurobarometer Public Opinion Survey, which is commissioned by the European Commission. It's run two times a year biannually and, and has been, been run every year since 1973. So we are fortunate that we do have a kind of 
measure of public opinion related to European integration, which is available covering the entire period of membership for Britain from, from 1973 onwards. There are some methodological and some concerns about the question wording which is used in the in the Eurobarometer surveys, but it is the preeminent source available in order to kind of understand what the public felt about European integration. In terms of trends, in the period up until the Maastricht Treaty was signed, there were a number of points at which question wording was changed um, related to developments in European integration, which is frustrating because it means that that data is not strictly comparable. Uh, but fortunately, from in the period post Maastricht, the survey developers created a more kind of streamlined, streamlined questionnaire wording, which which has enabled trends to be measured over was close to three decades now. So as a historian, I'm kind of fortunate to the extent that there is data available covering the entire period of Britain's membership. In terms of other survey data that I'm using, the British Social Attitude Survey, that's an annual survey which has been conducted since the 1980s. That's a useful source. And unfortunate as well, the fact that I, I worked for Ipsos Mori for four years, I've been able to go back and look at some of their archive data, have access to various data sets that, that they produce, which include questions on European integration, which, which I've been able to analyse. So I've been able to use my connections there. And looking at that period of time, is there a point at which we can say that sort of opposition to the UK's membership really started to, to build? Of course, there was the, the first referendum after the UK's accession in 1975. And then the period from there until Brexit in, in, in 2016, uh, the second referendum, the, the narrative is almost as though 1975 was a sort of wholesale endorsement of um, the European project and the referendum in 2016 was a wholesale rejection of it, whereas, of course, it's much more nuanced than that. In the, the public attitudes trends, can we see a point at which the opposition to the UK's membership starts to, to build? I think certainly the, the, the crucial turning point is in the mid-1990s when you've had Black Wednesday, after you've had the, the tumultuous battles within the Parliamentary Conservative Party over the ratification of the Maastricht Treaty, after the, the BSE crisis in 1996, when the banned exports of, of British beef to the EU, and also as well in the early years of Tony Blair's premiership, when there was rumours of the fact that the, a referendum would be held on British membership of the single currency, and, and that could have potentially led to the pound being surrendered as, as Britain's currency. But while negative attitudes towards European integration did increase in that period, it wasn't to the extent that negative attitudes became dominant. and what is interesting that I found in my research is the extent to which there was always a large proportion of the British population who held neutral views. Fortunately, the British public holding positive and negative attitudes did, did fluctuate at various times, but you always have a, a kind of groundswell of public opinion who don't really feel positive, don't really feel negative about integration. That's likely because of the fact that they weren't engaged with the subject. But really what, what happens in the mid-1990s is that those with a negative negative opinion of EU membership really become most vocal. So you get the impression that it's that Britain is a very Eurosceptic country just because it's the Eurosceptics who are dominating the debates, who, who have ownership of the issue. You talk about the large number of people with neutral opinions on, on EU membership. That suggests in a way that the political parties could have had a, an important role in leading public opinion if there's a large number of people undecided. And yet we've, we saw over that period of time from the 70s through until I suppose the 90s, a kind of turnaround in the party's positions on European integration. In the Conservative Party, first under Edward Heath, but then Margaret Thatcher as well, also in the, in the 70s, campaigning on, on the side of, of, of membership. And the Labour Party, and the, certainly the left of the Labour Party, being very Eurosceptic. And 
the two parties sort of positions shifted and directly reversed. So the Labour Party in the late 80s went from uh, being a Eurosceptic party to being very pro-European and the Conservative Party, certainly in the, in the late 80s into the 90s, went the other way. Do we see any corresponding sort of shift in, in the demographics of their supporters? Were they leading public opinion or were they following the, the views of their, of their supporters? You, you certainly see a shift in terms of the opinions of um, supporters of the main political parties. And that's kind of been a feature of public opinion towards European integration in Britain since even before, even, even before Britain joined in 1973. So when, for instance, under Harold Wilson, when, when Labour were leading the second negotiation, support tends to be greater before Britain to join among Labour Party voters than it did amongst Conservatives. Then when Heath was leading the, the drive to join in the early 1970s, it was more popular a notion among Conservative voters than it was Labour Party voters. And that certainly carried over into the period of Britain's membership. So in the late 70s, early 80s, it was Labour Party members who were kind of least enthusiastic about Britain's membership. Then given the transformations in the party positions that, that you mentioned, in the, in the 1990s, it becomes the case where negative attitudes towards European integration are associated more strongly with Conservative voters. I don't necessarily want to take a strong position on whether this is these changes are led by the parties or whether it's the parties adapting to public opinion i would lean towards it being more of a case of the the parties themselves influencing public opinion just because europe generally wasn't a very salient issue it wasn't necessarily something which the public were very well informed about it wasn't it wasn't something which really until till the 1990s proved to be something which was a central issue in general election campaigns also as well, though, the media certainly played a role in Britain. So you had the emergence of the Eurosceptic press in the 1980s, and that was kind of solidified in the, in the 90s when the Murdoch Press, the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail, the Daily Express all kind of adopt this, this Eurosceptic position. And these are the newspapers which, which dominate readership in Britain. And is it a uniquely British phenomenon? We, see, we tend to think that Britain's always been the, sort of the, odd, the odd one out in the European club, but... We also see opposition in, in other European countries, and we've seen referendums there which have been lost on, on treaties. What is the, the trend there amongst other European countries? I mean, I think France has had its, its ups and downs as well. Have you done much to sort of compare the, the British experience with, with that of other countries? So certainly if you read popular histories of Britain's engagement with European integration, you get the idea that Britain is unique in its Euroscepticism. So books with titles such as The Stranger in Europe, um, An Awkward Partner, my research is primarily concentrated upon Britain, but I do draw some comparisons with, with other countries. So obviously, that contextual information is important. And from that, you get the impression that Britain is not a uniquely Eurosceptic country. So it joins in, in 1973, in the same year as Denmark, and public attitudes towards European integration, certainly in the 70s and 80s in Denmark, were as cool as they were in Britain, if not cooler. Denmark was, was a famous member state given the fact that its electorate rejected the Maastricht Treaty in a referendum in 1992 and in, in kind of boosting the confidence of Eurosceptics within, within British politics. Uh, that referendum res result was overturned a few months later after the Danish government had negotiated um, further opt-outs. Then the, the, the countries who joined in the mid-1990s, so Sweden, Austria and Finland, the public opinion in those countries were not necessarily as negative as it was in Britain, but it's still the case that they, their populations and their governments too held, held more pragmatic attitudes towards European integration and were not necessarily, you wouldn't be able to classify their governments as being these kind of 
pro-federalist, pro-integration member states. So, so I think the idea that Britain is a uniquely or was a uniquely Eurosceptic, certainly questionable, both at a governmental level and a public opinion level. And obviously in recent years, the rise of, of populism in across Europe and in particular in countries such as Italy and France in Western Europe, where Fontaine Nationale and Salvini's party in Italy, they have used anti-EU rhetoric in order to kind of boost their popularity, boost their credentials. But but no, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that the that Euroscepticism is a unique feature of British politics. It's it's something which has existed in, in other member states throughout the period in which integration has, has taken place. You talked there about some of the referendum results that took place in, in other countries. Of course, Britain has only had the two referendums, both of which have been fairly all or nothing in or out referendums. Despite the fact there have been campaigns for and promises of referendums on the single currency, on the European constitution, those were referendums which we thought we might have and then didn't happen. Do you think it might have stemmed some of the Euroscepticism that we've seen if those referendums had taken place? We're moving into the council factual here, but it's, it's, it's a point which I, I tend to agree on. And so if, if we go back to the example of Denmark, so they had, a, they had two referendums on the Maastricht Treaty, one of which the initial one was, was rejected, the second of which, which passed. They've had referendums on other treaty amendments. They had a referendum on single currency in, in the early 2000s, which again was uh, rejected. And also uh, there was a referendum on the single currency in Sweden, which, which was rejected too. The, the moment at which I think it was probably most beneficial for a government to hold a referendum on an issue related to European integration would have been regarding the single currency. So in at, at the 1997 election, the three main parties all promised to hold a referendum um, on the single currency if the government was in a position where they were, they were likely to approve British membership. Labour's, Labour's policy on that was, in retrospect, slightly weird because their promise was to hold a referendum only if uh, the single currency had the approval of, of the parliament and only if the five economic tests that the treasury set out in in autumn 1997 and be matched so it was, they wanted it to be a decision based on the economics but once once the economic decision had, had been made then it would become a political decision and it wasn't until the early 2000s until the five economic tests had been fully assessed so that's a period of a good a good five years a whole parliamentary term where the, where the question of euro membership was open up in the air and what happened during that period was anti-Euro campaign groups such as Business for Sterling, such as New Europe, they all mobilised and in my opinion they fought a kind of proxy campaign. They created links with business organisations such as, such as the Institute um, of Directors, the IOD. And at least in my opinion you can see a clear link between the anti-Euro campaign and the 2016 referendum because there were individuals such as Dominic Cummings who was, a, was part of um, Business for Sterling when it formed. And it's not just in terms of personnel, but in terms of message too. So you had publications that these campaign groups produced concentrated on themes such as the need to retain control and issues around identity, which you can clearly see were then kind of reinterpreted in 2016 in terms of take back control, arguments around reducing immigration to Britain, uh, issues around British identity, which, which clearly worked and helped convince 52% of the, of the electorate to, to vote in favour of leave in 2016. So I think had Labour held a referendum on a matter such as a single currency, it wouldn't have been as high stakes an issue as Leave Remain vote was in 1975 and, and 2016. Because it was, it was clearly the case that the three main parties were committed to Britain's EU membership. And on a referendum regarding a single currency, it's likely that the Conservative Party would have recommended the no vote, but that wouldn't necessarily, that no vote wouldn't necessarily have meant that 
Britain's membership of the European Union was brought into question. So the, the, the two referendums on the single currency that I've mentioned in Denmark and Sweden, even though membership of, of those countries as a single currency was rejected, that didn't lead to calls for these countries to, to withdraw. So, so I think the, a, a referendum on a certain treaty development or the single currency would certainly be beneficial um, in hindsight. Well, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And looking at some of the specifics, uh, you've, you've tracked British attitudes towards particular aspects of EU integration. What aspects have provoked the most opposition? What are the issues that we've seen most opposition to over the years? Certainly of the, of the developments that I've been researching for my PhD thesis, the, the single currency is the one that stands out the most. And that's something which generated opposition both within the public and uh, within, within mainstream um, British politics. It's not necessarily the case that opposition was substantial for developments such as EU enlargement, but what, what was clear was that the, the 2004 enlargement, which saw um, countries such as Poland, uh, Hungary, Czech Republic, join the EU, the, the wave of migration that followed from that kind of led to opposition to enlargement being greater than support. And it wasn't the case that the, the, the main parties reassessed their policy towards enlargement until, until after the, the Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition government entered office. So it appears to have been the case that although public enthusiasm for EU enlargement had hardened in the mid-2000s, the, the main parties are still very much enthusiastic about increasing the size of the European Union, opening it up to, to new member states. Um, so, so that was a point at which there was kind of a divide between public opinion and, and party policy. Looking back slightly further, the, the uh, development of the single market in the late 1980s, which was strongly supported by the Conservative government at the time, indeed it's been described as um, implementing Thatcherism on a European scale. But public enthusiasm for the single market in Britain, although, although, although positive attitudes towards it outweighed negative attitudes, you, you couldn't say that the, the, the public's enthusiasm matched that of the government, which seems slightly bizarre given the extent to which the Thatcher government was selling um, popular capitalist reforms that they were implementing domestically. So there was kind of little promotion of the single market, which would be liberalising the internal market of the European Union, which could itself be interpreted as a popular capitalist measure. So, so while the single currency was the development in European integration, which generated the most hostile attitudes in, in, in British public opinion, the, the kind of other developments that, that I've been researching, I've, what I've found is there to be many points of dis, a disjuncture between either government support for a measure or government opposition to a measure and the public's attitude. And you um, cautioned me quite rightly against um, straying into counterfactuals um, earlier. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try with the final question to get into um, the ultimate counterfactual. Given the, the, the public opinion evidence and the trends that you've, you've looked at, if you'd been advising the Remain campaign to emphasise different aspects of EU membership which provoke the least opposition, I mean, we know roughly, I suppose, how the, the Leave campaign won. But if you'd been trying to work out a way to sell the EU to the British public in a way that they'd find attractive, based on the, on the trends and the evidence that you've seen, what would the best points have been? Do you think there was a way of better selling it or, or was it the fact that that there was simply no way this could have been won? I certainly think it was a referendum that, that could have been won. Um, the difficulty for the Remain side in 2016 was that there was no real um, emotive case that they could put forward like that, which, which the Leave campaign um, was able to 
um, successfully put across in 2016. In my opinion, part of the damage for the Remain campaign was done from the mid-1990s onwards when you have this growth in Euroscepticism uh, within the Conservative Party and you have a, a pro-European uh, Labour government who would call on promoting those credentials. Um, if, 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 we, if, if I focus on the, the Conservative Party for, for a brief moment, obviously they, they, they ran their 1999 European election campaign under the, under the slogan, In Europe, Not Run by Europe, which was um, readopted in 2001 under Hague. But if you look at the, the, the manifesto material that the Conservatives published for, for, for those elections ca campaigns, you see strong support for the, for the type of EU which they had helped forge. So you have the Conservative Party claiming that they were the ones who inspired the concept of subsidiarity. You have the Conservative Party claiming that they were the ones responsible for the, for the single market. So at a base level, they were putting across a message which was very critical of the EU. But if you looked underneath at the detail, it was, it was clear that, that, that they saw membership as being extremely beneficial for Britain. Um, and they, they, they saw that the EU that they had helped forge, the opt-outs that they had negotiated were, were things which, which, which they supported. And then in terms of, in terms of new Labour, Labour Party voters in general were far less likely to consider Europe as an important issue than, than Conservative voters and Liberal Democrat voters. And that perhaps was an opportunity for, for the Blair government to communicate a message about European integration, which, while not being ridiculously pro-European, was able to say, here are the benefits, emphasise that it was in, in, in Britain's prime interest. The two main parties of government have typically, there have been large continuities in terms of their policy towards, towards Europe. So they're both supported, both, both heavily supported of the single markets, certainly with Labour since, since the 1990s, both heavily supportive of enlargement, both heavily supportive of the, the kind of opt-outs that uh, British governments had, had negotiated and the flexibility within, within the European Union that, that that had created, and both supportive of the idea of cooperating on, on foreign policy matters within the European Union. But that, I mean, it's, it's, it's not an emotive, emotive argument like those around immigration and taking back control, which, which Vote Leave put forward in 2016, but had these aspects of European integration and government policy towards the EU been, been better known by the public, then I think it is possible that the, the outcome of the 2016 uh, referendum could have been different. I think there, there was a failure on behalf of the political class to promote Britain's interests in membership of the European Union to the British public. Well, I think a failure by the political classes is a, a, a suitable note to end on. So thanks very much for, for, for joining us um, at short notice. And, um, and you're, you're, hoping to, you're submitting your PhD later this year. Hopefully. Hopefully by the end of the autumn, I'll be in a position where I can enjoy a similar grinning like this and at the end of it, come out, come out with a new title. <laughs> thanks very much. No problems. Thanks. Stuart Smedley there talking to me earlier this week, and I'm very grateful to him for joining us on the podcast. That just about wraps it up for this episode. Uh, I hope you found it interesting. Do please leave us a review uh, and a positive rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts from, and spread the word to other people who might find it of interest. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another exciting guest to talk about all things opposition. But in the meantime, look after yourselves, and it's goodbye for me. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. You can follow us at Facebook at Opposition Studies, Twitter at Opposition UK, and online at oppositionstudies.net. Mm -hmm.